On the cold evening of the 20th of December 1943, over 650 Allied planes took off from their bases in England and headed for Germany. Bomber Command wanted a decisive strike right at the industrial heart of Nazi Germany. And so it would be. But for one crew in particular, the Salty would become a desperate fight for survival, from which not all of them would return. There's a Lancaster that came down in December 1943. It's an incredible story. The bravery of that crew is just phenomenal. Can you see him? These are the remarkable true actions of the seven men on board Lancaster bomber MGA JB652 during that fateful mission. They were always service before self. And if that means that I am putting myself in harm's way, well, that is my duty. By the end of the night, the plane would be blown to pieces and the deeds of all on board would enter RAF folklore. This is the legend of Lancaster A for Apple. I'm Bruce Crompton, history fanatic, military antique collector and ex-paratrooper. In Amazing War Stories, you're going to hear about incredible actions all taken from records housed in museum collections. It's only by unearthing these wonderful tales that I hope to keep these important institutions and the heroes contained within them alive for future generations. The thing about history is that you never know when you're going to come across it. Just before the great coronavirus lockdown, I was sitting in my local pub with my old friend Richie Pymar when he showed me a really unusual object he picked up overseas. Richie, my old mucker, what is it? It's black and it's made of Bakelite. It's German then, yeah? No, it actually comes from an RAF bomber. This is part of a loo seat on a Lancaster. A loo seat? Yeah. I didn't know they had toilets on the Lancasters. Well, they did. They used to have a uh, toilet called an Elson toilet. Right. And, of course, on, um, on the operations that they went on, they uh, would, could be up in the air for anything up to eight hours. So, obviously, they would need a toilet of some description. And where does that come from? Well, this came from a crash site in Germany, near Nuremberg. Richie has a huge knowledge of World War II and runs a lovely Air Force Museum just down the road in Halesworth, Suffolk. You should visit it if you get a chance. The details on how to find it are on our show notes. But what was even more fascinating than the fact that there were toilets on board Lancasters was the revelation that Richie told me there might be one of them lying around in a field right next to my house. There's a Lancaster that came down um, in December 1943. It's an incredible story. The bravery of that crew is, is, just, is just phenomenal. The tale he told me of Lancaster bomber call sign A for Apple was one that I hadn't heard before. And the more I listened, the more incredible it sounded. 
What was really amazing wasn't just the jaw-dropping heroics of the crew, but the fact that when it hit the ground, it was still fully laden with all its bombs. By all accounts, the explosion was so big, it left a crater 90 feet wide and brought down ceilings and blew out windows in all of the villages and towns near the crash site. As you can imagine, there wasn't much left of the plane. When he told me about the monumental explosion, my mind raced ahead. Who could have survived such a thing? What happened to the men on board and how did their plane end up being blown to bits in the middle of the Suffolk countryside? Luckily for me, Richie had all the answers. The museum he works in has an enormous collection of war records and personal memorabilia. And one of the prize exhibits is all about Donald Field, the pilot of that plane. This story is taken entirely from first-hand records that were documented at the time by the authorities and some of the survivors of that flight. Everything you're about to hear is true, no matter how incredible it sounds. The legend of Afer Apple starts on the cold evening of December the 20th, 1943, five days before Christmas. The Lancaster registration JB652 was flying on its way towards Frankfurt and was part of an enormous sortie of some 650 planes. Their target, the industrial area of the city. The Air Ministry hoped a successful strike would dramatically reduce the enemy's resources and help turn the tide of the war. Sitting in the cockpit that night was Flight Officer Donald Field. He was the captain of the plane and all of the men on board trusted his judgement implicitly. As a crew they had already flown several sorties together and by and large had always made it back in one piece, despite some significant close calls. There was no doubt about it in the men's mind. Donald was one of the best Lancaster pilots in the RAF. Sitting on his right was Flight Engineer Sergeant Peter Joseph John Cofid. JJ, or Joe, as he was affectionately known by his friends, was a 20-year-old Jewish boy from Islington, London. Below and in front was Flight Sergeant Arthur Art Halverson, the air bomber, or bomb aimer. Behind them was Sergeant Tommy Kelly, the navigator, and Sergeant Robert Crawley, the wireless operator. The final two crew members were Sergeant George Paddy Armstrong, the mid-upper air gunner, and Warrant Officer Richard Dickie Smith, the rear gunner. Dickie's wife had just had a baby daughter on the 14th of December, but he had yet to meet the little one. He couldn't wait to spend Christmas with his new family. Flight Lieutenant Neil Farrell is an officer in the RAF and a Lancaster pilot. He serves on the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, which flies one of the world's only two airworthy Lancaster bombers. I was lucky enough to sit in the upper turret on the Lancaster to get my first flight out the way, just experience that before I started to learn to fly it. My first thought was, my God, I'm very exposed up here. You're sat in a bubble canopy on top of the aeroplane. You can see all around you. And I just think to myself, this must have been terrifying to be a gunner up here uh, on top of the airplane, sticking out in the wind, 
and your job is to protect it. You're in a very heavy bomber, thousands of miles from home, at night, you're cold, you're probably fatigued, you're relying on every man in that airplane to do his job properly. You're bouncing around, probably in the cloud. You're petrified that some German fighter is going to find you and you're not going to be hit by the flak as well. Uh, you hope you don't bump into another bomber. So obviously you won't have lights on trying to avoid each other. You're trying to be quite stealthy. And you've got to hope that you find your target and then you've got to make your way all the way home again without being caught. So I think it was a terrifying prospect. And what is more impressive is that these guys volunteered to do this back in the day. It's incredible. By December 1943, the outcome of the war still hung in the balance. Air Chief Marshal Bomber Harris thought the war could be won through a relentless bombing campaign. The targets were cities and highly industrialised areas such as the Ruhr Valley, made famous in the Dam Busters raid earlier that year. The Allies desperately needed a breakthrough and a raid like this might just deliver it. At around 7pm, the first plane started to reach the outskirts of the target and for the Pathfinders, they expected heavy enemy resistance. The crew readied themselves for action and they didn't need to wait long. I can only imagine what it must have been like to be on one of the planes as it neared the target. One of the things that strike us today is how small it is inside. If you're lucky enough to visit one of the museums, for example, Duxford, you'll see actually how cramped and awkward it is for the crews to manoeuvre inside the aeroplane. Back in the 1940s, this aircraft would have been very high, so therefore cold. So the crews were wearing their sheepskin clothing to keep warm. And with the added encumbrance of a a parachute they would have to jump out with. If you had to bail out at night, it would have been terrifying. If conditions inside the plane were bad, outside they weren't much better. During the flight, cloud cover had crept in over the target, making ground sighting very, very difficult. Worst of all, Bomber Command informed them that the air ahead was crawling with night fires. Then out of the inky darkness, the enemy struck. The first the crew knew about it was the vibration of the four Browning machine guns fired by Smith. He followed it up with a yell over the intercom that a German ME-210 had been spotted and was manoeuvring for attack. Enemy fighter at six o'clock. Everyone was on high alert their eyes straining as they looked out into the night sky, trying to spot the danger. Inside the Lancaster, the sound of the Browning guns firing would have been deafening. Cartridge cases littering the floor around the gunners. As the plane bobbed and weaved through the sky, it must have felt sickening to be on board. Soon the attack was over, almost as quickly as it had begun. Air combat really only lasted a matter of seconds. In movies, you see a lot of aircraft circling for hours with seemingly endless amounts of ammunition. Back in the 1940s, it wasn't the case. For a fighter to be at altitude fighting a bomber, he's at high power, he's using a lot of fuel, 
And also, the wings weren't that big. So the amount of ammunition within the wings isn't a lot. It's only um, a continuous burst of about 10 to 15 seconds, and all the ammunition is gone. So it's a very short affair for these individual fighters, which is why they had to send quite a lot up, send them back down, refuel and rearm, and send them back up as quick as possible. Maybe the Messerschmitt had run low on fuel, or maybe the quick reactions of Smith and the other gunners in the formation scared it off. Whatever the reason, it left pronto. But back on board Apple, things had taken a turn for the worse. The plane had been strafed by the ME-210's guns, which had caused some considerable damage. The flight engineer reported a loss in the hydraulic pressure, and a quick damage assessment showed that several control cables had been shot through. More perilous than the plane damage was the fact that Field, Kofed and Crawley had been hit. The Messerschmitt rounds had flown through the fuselage and some tiny white-hot pieces of metal had gone through the pilot's hand and arm, making the plane particularly painful for him to fly. Kofed and Crawley were hit in the face, but not seriously enough to immobilise them. Being attacked when fully laden with the explosives must have been a scary experience, and it was a wonder or a miracle that the payload hadn't gone off. I imagine the crew were grateful to still be alive, but they were far from through it. The radio intercom had also been hit, which meant the crew couldn't easily talk to each other. The only way of passing information was by shouting over the deafening roar of the Merlin engines and the howling wind. On top of this, they had lost all internal lighting, which may not sound like a big deal, but as this mission was a night it meant that all tasks were now particularly difficult to perform, especially map reading. But the worst news of all, Kofed reported that they couldn't open the Bombay doors. Fields' heart sank. Not only could they not drop their payload on the target, but they were now literally sitting in a flying bomb. Hello. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Amazing War Stories. I'm Ed Sayer, co-founder and producer of this show, and I just wanted to tell you about our new website, AmazingWarStories.com. Inside, you can find out more about our podcast, take a deep dive into some of the weapons and equipment used by our heroes, or you can sign up to our awesome newsletter, where we give you the lowdown on military museums, host fun reader polls, and of course, feature little-known Amazing War Stories that Bruce and I have come across during our research. So after you finish listening, please take time to visit, and if you think you have an Amazing War Story you'd like us to feature, then do get in touch. Just click on the link on our show notes. AmazingWarStories.com, the home of military heroes. The target of Frankfurt was fast approaching. If they couldn't get the Bombay doors open soon... Not only would there be one less Pathfinder to show the rest of the group the target, they would have to fly all the way back across enemy territory with a full payload. The crew frantically tried to manually open the doors, whilst the bomb-aver, Halverson, searched ahead through the clouds for their ground target. Fields didn't want to give up yet. He continued their bombing run and held their position in the group. But opening the doors wasn't as simple as finding the crank handle and winding them open. Everything on the plane either worked through hydraulic pressure or with cables, 
and as both systems had been shot through, it meant they weren't going to fix it before reaching Frankfurt. Field had no choice. He would have to abort the run and leave the operation. Peeling off from the group, he headed the plane for home. The situation for them was grim. Alone in the skies over enemy territory, they were now prime targets to be picked up by searchlights, shot at by flat guns and taken down by night fighters. Whichever way you looked at it, their chances of survival had dramatically reduced. On board, the crew continued to work at trying to find a solution to the Bombay doors. They had to get them open. But it was incredibly hard without the intercom or working lights to see by. Richie explained to me why crews had to get rid of high-explosive cargo. Bringing back a full bomb load back to your airfield would be suicidal, really, because the bombs are armed, heavy landing or anything like that, with a 4,000-pound cookie or whatever. It would completely devastate the airfield. So if they aborted or they had got severely damaged in whatever way, they would drop these bombs, usually over the channel somewhere, you know, and hopefully make it back. The biggest danger they now faced was being picked off by German night fighters. The enemy planes each patrolled a specific area of the sky. This reduced the chance of them shooting down friendly aircraft. Apple was still in the sector where the first encounter had happened, and they had no way of knowing whether the threat had gone or whether it was still at large. For a very alert crew, the Lancaster would have had a very good stab at defending itself. You have guns fore and aft and on top, I would not think it would have been easy, but certainly there would have been a lot of firepower coming off the aircraft. The other option available to a Lancaster is, of course, the corkscrew manoeuvre, where the pilot turns and dives the aircraft, often shaking off an enemy. It was quite a difficult manoeuvre for the crew. And also, don't forget, the Lancaster was a bomber. It wasn't an agile fighter. So you would put the aircraft under quite a lot of stress and I've certainly heard stories of Lancasters coming back a slightly different shape to when they went because of the high G that they put the aircraft under, it's deformed it slightly. So the corkscrew was quite a high energy maneuver, but it often did the job. But with an injured crew and a full payload, Apple couldn't pull off a defensive maneuver like a corkscrew. Their only option was to rely on the machine guns. Whilst over enemy territory, the whole crew needed to be vigilant. It took everyone's eyes scouring the skies to try and spot enemy fighters for the gunners to shoot at. Half an hour later, as the plane limped back towards Britain, the seemingly inevitable happened. The Messerschmitt struck again. The guns of Armstrong and Smith lit up the night sky. Trace around, scything through the darkness, trying to find their mark on the enemy plane. Key to the defence of the bomber was good communications. One thing Apple didn't have with its comm system disabled. Normally, gunners and the rest of the crew would call out the positions of the fighters to the pilot, who could then manoeuvre the plane into the best position for a shot. But in this instance, they had to rely solely on the shooting skills of Paddy Armstrong and Dickie Smith, as there was no way they could shout out over the roar of the Merlin engines and machine guns. 
shuddered once again as the enemy fighters struck the plane. And immediately, the inner port engine stopped and caught fire. The captain and chief engineer worked together to put the engine fire out. They shut it down and switched on the fire suppression system. Fire was deadly and could quickly spread if not dealt with. Meanwhile, the gunners Smith and Armstrong did a valiant job in holding off the enemy. Soon, the night fighter had had enough and left them alone. The Lancaster was a robust machine and was designed to be able to fly home on just two of its four Merlin engines. So having to survive on three with a Captain Light Fields in charge wasn't an immediate problem. But the fully laden plane with only three engines was becoming a slow-moving target and they were beginning to get close to other German strongpoints which had all been fortified with anti-aircraft guns. For the men in A for Apple, things started to go wrong quickly. As they neared the coast, searchlights started sweeping the skies. Flying home for bombers was nearly as perilous as flying to the target, and the only thing keeping them safe was speed they gained from having dropped their payloads. But for Apple, limping home on three engines while still fully laden, the advantage was still in the Germans' court. One beam found them, and the murderous flak bursts were soon lighting up the air around the bomber. This would have been a terrifying time. All it would take was one little piece of shrapnel to hit the payload and boom! <laughs> Good night, Vienna. Anti-aircraft flak shells were designed to explode at certain altitudes, spraying deadly hot metal around them. Getting hit initially was more luck than judgement, but once the gunners had the altitude dialed in, targeting became much easier. Through the cockpit, Flying Officer Phil would just about have been able to see the black mass of the North Sea looming up ahead. They just had to make it a few more miles. Suddenly, an enormous bang shook the plane. The flak was getting a little too close for comfort. Changing altitude and direction, Fields tried to evade the searchlight and flak guns but flying suddenly got much harder. Field now wasn't sure that they could even make it back to England. Once over the relative safety of the North Sea, I can imagine the crew breathed a sigh of relief. Well, maybe not all of them. They were out of the fire, but not out of the frying pan. Fields knew if they couldn't ditch their bombs, then they couldn't land. He realised that there was only one option left if he was to save his men. He told Kofed that he would fly them back to Britain over the coast of Suffolk. There, they would be able to bail out over the safety of land, whilst he stayed on board and turned the plane back towards the North Sea, where he could ditch the plane. That way, no one back in England could be hurt by their terrible cargo. Everybody on board knew what this meant for Fields. 
Jumping out the dead of night was a virtual death sentence. Pilots very rarely survived a sea ditching during the daytime, let alone at night, in winter whilst being wounded. It was an incredibly brave and selfless decision and the only sure way to minimise loss of life. It must have been with heavy hearts that the crew checked their parachutes and lined up near the main door to jump clear. The Suffolk coastline came up quickly and Fields gave the order, but there was a panic. In the chaos of trying to prepare for the jump, Sergeant Crawley, the radio operator, accidentally activated his parachute inside the plane. As funny as it sounds, it was in fact very serious. Jumping from a plane with an already open parachute was usually fatal, as it was easy for it to get caught in the slipstream and tangled in the plane itself. Crawley had no option but to risk it. Gathering his shoe in his arms, he readied himself to leap into the darkness as the rest of the crew started to jump out. As the last man left the plane, Fields felt a bang on the controls, but the bomber still continued to fly relatively straight. Soon, he was alone on the aircraft, and he steeled himself for the next part of his plan, to ditch in the sea. He grabbed the controls to begin the turn, but the plane didn't respond. The damage was worse than he initially realised, and turning the plane towards the sea was now impossible. He also couldn't lower the landing gear, so any type of controlled landing would be out of the question. Then, if the situation seemingly couldn't get any worse for Fields, it most definitely did. Ahead in the moonlight, he could see the muted silhouette of a small town called Halesworth. If the fully laden Lancaster were to hit there, then literally hundreds could die. There was only one option left. He had to stay on board for as long as possible and by using engine power only, he would try to turn the bomber away and find a place to ditch in the dead of night. This wouldn't be easy, especially without flight engineer on board to help manage the controls. The altimeter showed a thousand feet, 950, 900. Soon it would be impossible for him to bail out if he couldn't find a space large enough to crash the plane into. Peering out of the cockpit, he spotted a huge swage of fields, devoid of buildings and seemingly empty of life, perfect to smash into. At just 800 feet, the bare minimum altitude that a parachute will work in, he set the plane on its course and bailed out. from the impact would have been monumental, showering the surrounding fields with broken objects from the aircraft. The noise of thousands of pounds of explosives going off at once would have been heard for tens of miles, maybe as far away as London as it was in the dead of night. Amazingly, flying officer Field survived his low-level jump and was soon picked up by the locals who heard the crash. In fact, they all made it out safely apart from one. Surprisingly, Crawley, with his already open parachute, survived his jump. But their rear gunner, Warrant Officer Dickie Smith, did not. He sadly lost his life after he collided with the plane's tail whilst jumping out. The impact prevented him from opening his parachute. 
But the real tragedy was he never got to meet his newborn daughter. After Donald recovered from his injuries, he was sent to become an instructor and didn't fly in combat again. Captain Donald Field received a distinguished flying cross for his actions that night. But were he here today, he would have said nothing he did was exceptional. Any person would have done the same. Ritchie knew him personally, and apparently after the war, Field emigrated to Canada. I used to have a lot of conversation with him on the telephone, and he was such a humble man. It wasn't until I actually spoke to him about what happened that particular night that you then started to build up a big picture of how brave he was and some of the crew who he flew with said if it hadn't been for him they wouldn't be there because he was that good a pilot because it wasn't just the 20th of December 1943 where they had a problem uh, in November they had a problem as well where they were rammed up the backside by another Lancaster and basically they had no elevators or rudders and Don Field again saved the life of his crew by using his engines to steer the aircraft and bring them back safely to Oakington. Anyway, he was a lovely man and uh, I miss my conversations with him now. For the plane, Eighth Rapple, this was of course the end of the road. But in 1943, the war was still a long way from being over and the rest of the crew would see a lot more combat, but sadly not together, as they were each assigned to different planes. Unfortunately, Flight Engineer Sergeant J.J. Joe Covid was killed on the 20th of May 1944, flying with another crew on a raid to the Martian Yards at Le Mans in France. Thankfully, however, by the end of the war and despite the odds being against them, the remaining crew of A for Apple made it through. As I sit here looking out over the field where this extraordinary story ended, I can't help but think of the bravery of those seven men that night. They were prepared, like so many others, to selflessly lay down their lives to bring an end to the war. The raid on Frankfurt, from the Allied's perspective, was a complete success. Richie generously gave me that piece of Bakelite Lucy, and it now holds a special place in my collection. Although it was from a different plane, Whenever I hold it in my hands, I'm always reminded about what incredible stories a bizarre single object can unearth. If you want to find out more about these amazing individuals, please see the show notes, which you can find on your app or our social media pages. But even better, why don't you go to Richie's Museum in Halesworth? the Imperial War Museum at Duxford, or the equally amazing International Bomber Command Centre in Lincoln. They're all lovely places to spend time with the family. I really want to help museums, both big and small, in these difficult times. We've had some incredible original artwork of A for Apple, gifted to us by the war illustrator Piotr Forkasovich. If you head over to the museum shops, you can buy them and all the profits will go to those institutions. Please take time to give this podcast a like or a review as the more people that do, the easier it can be found by other listeners. One final thing, a word of thanks to the people, museums and organisations who free of charge gave up their time to help me tell this story. 
This episode of Amazing War Stories was researched, written and produced by Ed Sayer. The executive producer is Paul Wooding and the associate producer is Lois Crompton. Sound design and 3D mastering is by Vaudeville Sound and music is by Extreme Music. Thank you.